previously on Beta. I, I know the deal hasn't gone down. I, I, I know it hasn't. I can, I can feel it. I'm dead certain. Exterminate all rational thought. That is the conclusion I have come to. All right, so I can't do it. Silence is overrated anyway. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Today, Reggie Watts, the trailblazing comedian and musician, joins us to talk about growing up in Great Falls, Montana. I think high school could be a really great adventure, and I would like to try to experience as many of the social classes as possible. Also, writer and artist Miriam Gerba on her thrilling, no-holds-barred essay collection, Creep, Accusations and Confessions. I found the abyss staring back at me, and I really wanted to explore what I had survived through prose. But first... There were bats smoking. There were bats with tattoos. There were blonde bats. There were brown bats and darker brown bats and blonde bats. I tried to text David Attenborough for like half an hour. One of the most remarkable things is the blonde bat. Originally from Malibu, California, migrated to Jamaica during the Honduran champagne season. That's comedian Greg Proops from his latest album, French Drug Deal. Besides being a great stand-up, Greg's also famous for his improv work on Whose Line Is It Anyway? So it's no surprise that he ended up improvising his latest album. And he's such a pro that you probably won't even notice. I sure didn't. One of the cool things about his album is that the cover looks just like The Clash's London Calling. And that got me thinking. Since The Clash is known as the only band that matters, does this mean that Greg is riffing off this punk rock tagline in a subtle, suitably Proopsian way? Is he making the case that Greg Proops is the only comedian that matters? Not only am I the only comedian that matters, I'm the only one who's not going to lie to you. There's a lot of them out there that'll lie. When I lie, it's really just fantasy strung together for a mere amusement. There's no harm in it. So, <laughs> I love your honesty. Thank you so Thank much, you. Greg, for being so honest. Besides being a great stand-up comedian, you're also famous for your improvisational work on the American and British editions of Whose Line Is It Anyway? So I have to ask you, did you improvise any of your jokes on French Drug Deal? I improvised all of them. I, uh, I went in with an idea of what I wanted to talk about. And then we recorded over a weekend last uh, New Year's Eve in San Francisco at the Punchline. So I had a chance to do them set four or five times and we recorded four of them. And so I extrapolated from each one and did different things and then sort of honed it. But I made up the whole album, yeah. None of it was set down written material that I thought of beforehand. So let's talk about the title track, which I'm assuming is the first single, French Drug Deal. What's the origin story behind it? Well, uh, I was in Paris with my wife, uh, which I try to take her there every year. So we do a podcast there over at um, Shakespeare and Company, the English language bookstore in Paris. And uh, we were coming back from the podcast and it was a um, we're walking on the Rue, as it were. It was after a big football game. The French were playing Morocco. And the French police, as they often do, overreacted and had 20,000 police on the street. I don't know what they thought was going to happen, whether the Moroccans were going to riot. As you know, when the French win, they don't go bananas. They just kind of smoke and 
and pretend to sing songs that they're not very good at. Um, so they won, and we were standing on the street, and a burgundy SUV, I swear to you, came bumping down the street playing La Marseillaise at top volume. Here's your weed. Man, we need to class it up here. I've never been in Texas and seen someone driving along and all of a sudden, I'm as free as a bird now. Hey, Caleb, here's your meth. Lord help me, I can't change. Yeah, yeah. One of the recurring themes on French drug deal is animals. You talk about fruit bats, you talk about cockatoos, chickens. Was this intentionally planned that way or did it just kind of happen? It just happened, Doug. I started telling stories. I think three or four of the stories start with Jennifer and I were in Australia, Jennifer and I were in Hawaii, Jennifer and I were in France. And I realized <laughs> that I was being repetitive and telling the same, well, that all we did was change locations. And so it turns out that in every country, there's some sort of animal encounter. And as you can probably guess, I'm not a huge outdoor person. For me, outdoors is where you park the car to take a picture before you go somewhere to get coffee. And um, so it wasn't intentional. But I, I've been attacked by fruit bats in, in Australia. I've been attacked by Caribbean bats in Jamaica. And uh, I've been ignored and derided by chickens in Hawaii. I've had chickens openly deride me. <laughs> and, and make fun of me. Uh, What's to make fun of, though? We went to a foods truck, and um, I ordered the pork. In fact, it was called Pork Heaven, which I think is self-explanatory. Yeah, then, but it wasn't. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I wanted to tell you this, Greg. When I first heard that, I thought I heard it as Poor Kevin, and I was waiting to hear, oh, poor I was going to hear this sad story about Kevin. And then you, when you said it a few more times, I realized, no, it's Poor Kevin. It says, Poor Kevin. In big black magic marker, pork heaven. And I was like, that sounds intriguing. We've all wanted to go to pork heaven, but some of us have been afraid to utter that to our partner. <laughs> so thank you for that mild laughter on that one. So pork heaven would be a great track. I should have called it pork heaven. If I had been clever, I would have called the track pork, pork heaven. And my wife said, I'll have the chicken. And uh, if you've ever been to Maui or any island in Hawaii, there's chickens everywhere. I mean, the, like they're roaming freely. Even Hawaiians will admit to you there's too many bloody chickens. There's a very laissez-faire attitude toward the chicken population there. There were chickens all around this food truck, literally scratching at our feet. And Jennifer said, I'll have the chicken. And the guy in the food truck went, there's no chicken. And I was like, there's chicken pretty much everywhere. You could, why don't we knock one of these ones out? See what you can do. Put some curry on it. Let's go. And so as we ate our lunch, which was pork, the chickens gathered around us and were like, not this time, bro. Not this time. <laughs> yeah. You have a very versatile voice and you've put it to good use on Star Wars, The Phantom Menace and The Nightmare Before Christmas. I especially loved your impressions of a Southwest Airlines pilot named Mike. What's your take on Southwest Airlines pilots? Airline pilots seem to me to be a group of men with mustaches named Mike. I, I never see an, an American flag tie. I, I hardly ever see women pilots once in a while. And I fly every day or pilots that aren't white guys. 
I feel like a lot of them were at January 6th, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. And I loved you. You did that. Like you just nailed the impressions that the, like the impressions of them over the, the coming over the speakers. When you're in the airport and you see them at, you know, a, a pretzel place or whatever, or the Cinnabon, they're like, can I help you? The pilots don't go. <laughs> 35,000 Cinnabons, uh, just about reached Cinnabon altitude here. Uh, if you look out the left side of the Cinnabon, you'll see the, you'll see the Zabaro pizza. I, I think the tyranny of guys named Mike flying planes needs to end one day. It does. And the, the fact that you're bringing attention to it, I think, is like a good, a step in the right direction of ending this tyranny. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So thank you for doing that on yeah. behalf of everyone. In 2009, you appeared on The View to talk about a science game show that you were part of. And it was produced by Whoopi Goldberg, who, of course, is also on The View at that time and probably still is. I don't know, but I haven't kept up with it anyway. And you have this great story about a psychic who was also a guest on the show. Can you tell us about that? I did a show for Whoopi that she produced called head games not based on the song by foreigner and the only reason i got on the view uh, let's be honest is that Whoopi was producing the the sci-fi show i mean the show it was on discovery channel and uh it was a science quiz show you know it was pretty light stuff you know a what's a photon or whatever and blah 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 barbara walters had a friend one of her crew had a wife and the wife was a psychic and so she put this woman on she was a bit like um a televangelist you know she had sort of archaic hair that was immovable and that sort of rictus that uh, the people who are certain of their insanity her eyes were glittering with misapprehension right and she went i want you to know that recently i've spoken with michael jackson and he wants us all to know that he's okay and everybody looked at everybody joy and i looked at each other and whoopi and whatnot and like are you sure you just spoke with michael jackson so now it gets to my segment even the view audience at this point was like, what is happening? And Barbara, I could tell, was wanted to melt into the earth because this woman was just going on uh, in sheer insanity. And so I'm next and I pitch up and they're like, okay, here's the comedy of Greg Proops. And before the segment starts, I look over at Whoopi and she can see the look in my eye and she just leans over to me and goes, don't. <laughs> That's all. Joy goes, tell us about the show. And I go, it's a science game show and people test their knowledge of science against one another. And Einstein called me the other day and told me that he loved the show. And then Newton called with Copernicus and said that they thought, it, Mary Curie said, this show will have a half-life of five million years. Was Whoopi mad at you? Did she hold a grudge? No, her and Joy were trying to contain themselves. They're both comedians. Yeah. I know them. And, you know, they have to do a lot of acting on the show. They have to listen to Alyssa Farrar give her opinion. And they had to, in the old days, listen to Elizabeth Hasselbeck give her opinion. And these are people of the Alyssa Farrar, Elizabeth Hasselbeck school of punditry who say things like, well, it may not be a fact, but I just know how I feel. So after you heard that one time I asked Whoopi, how can you sit through it? And she went, oh, child. 
you just have to listen to them and just move on. And I'm like, got it. <laughs> One of the tracks on French Drug Deal is called Making White People Happy. What inspired this one? White people are so angry. Like right now I hear white people say things like, I don't like the, for instance, this week, there was several pundits who wrote that they felt that Biden should step down. I guess because Biden is doing too good of a job or they'll say um, Vice President Harris should step down, but they can't quite put their finger on the reason why they don't like Vice President Harris. Now, there's been 45 white guys who've been vice president, and some of them have been remarkable. You've got your Hubert Humphreys and your Joe Bidens, and then some of them have been Dan Quayle and Mike Pence and, and worse. All of a sudden, they're mad at her. So to me, it's like, what would make white people happy? Kamala Harris was sworn into office on January 5th. Senators Ossoff and Warnock from Georgia were sworn into office, a, a Jewish man and a black man. And the next day, they attacked the Capitol. And not a coincidence. I think white people really can't believe that the world is being taken away from them by, by Jews and black people all at once. Uh, they've been told for a year that no matter what happens, they would have won, right? He kept saying, I don't care what the vote is, I win. And then when he didn't win, they weren't really able to handle that. So I, I, what would make white people happy? White people are in charge of everything. If you read the newspaper or watch television, it's, I guess what the question is, as a white person speaking to another white person, when will we be heard from? When will our opinion be heard, I ask you? Why must we be shunted to the side <laughs> when will you see a white pundit on TV talk about stuff they don't know about? When? Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't think I'll be around for that. Right? Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what do you think is the biggest problem in stand-up comedy right now? I think that there's a lot of comics who have no moral barometer. I, I think that the problem is there's a lot of polemic and nonsense and right-wing dogma that a lot of comics are putting forward. That, that woke stuff must really constrain your comedy. Well, I have a thing that I subscribe to called taste and manners. And this is how it works. If you haven't the taste uh, to not make fun of people who cannot defend themselves, and you haven't the manners to not be racist, bigoted, sexist, and transphobic and homophobic all the time, then you really oughtn't be a comedian. You can be a policeman or a Republican senator or something. And I think that a lot of comics don't have any taste and a lot of comics don't have any manners. If that sounds churlish, I don't mean to be. However, I've been around a really long time. And uh, I think a lot of young comics are fantastic. When you go to clubs, you can't get away with the kind of racist, sexist nonsense that when I started in the early 80s in San Francisco, you know, Chinese driver jokes and gay jokes, those don't play anymore. They really don't. Having said that, there's plenty of redneck nonsense going on out there. And I don't think supporting the dominant paradigm is what a comic's supposed to do. I think you're supposed to question what's going on. I don't think Lenny Bruce died so that I could hear podcasters go on and tell people not to get vaccinated, in other words. Very well said. Very well said. Yeah, thank you. I was, I was going to ask you, that because that part went over really like gangbusters that that whole line about if if you're having the taste to not make fun of people that whole bit which you kindly recited for us that that is really bang on 
<laughs> Greg Proops, thank you very much for joining us today. Congratulations on what we think is your 10th album, French Drug Deal. It's smart, funny comedy that you haven't dumbed down for some mass bonehead audience, and we appreciate that. My apologies for plagiarizing Seinfeld, but I think you'll be okay with it. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Doug. What a pleasure to talk to you today. I appreciate it. Greg Proops is the only comedian that matters and the only one who's not going to lie to you. Find out more about Greg and his album French Drug Deal at WPR.org slash beta. The whole invite them up scene back in New York in early 2000s was just all a bunch of sweethearts, you know, sweetheart, brilliant, weirdo, genius people. And uh, it was great. It was nice to be accepted. Coming up, comedian and musician Reggie Watts joins us to talk about his memoir, Great Falls, Montana. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Now, are you aware of that song, Reggie? I, no, I'm not. So You're not. Sorry. That's very interesting. You wrote that song. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I get it. I understand the, the, uh, the ephemeral way in which you write music. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a little hurt. It happens to be the theme song to Key and Peele. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's really quite brilliant, Reggie, and I... Well, uh, that, that is correct. <laughs> That's comedian Keegan-Michael Key teasing our next guest, Reggie Watts. If you don't know who Reggie is, you can guess from Keegan's story that even Reggie can't keep all his pop culture creations straight. Reggie describes himself as a musician, comedian, and a consummate weirdo. I'm definitely a weirdo, but I don't think I'm a consummate weirdo. I'm more of an inept weirdo. But don't worry, there's still time. Reggie has used his incredible imagination and a looping machine to blur the lines between music and comedy. And he put both together when he spent eight years as the hilarious band leader on The Late Late Show with James Corden. Now Reggie is an author. Perhaps we could describe him as a consummate memoirist. Reggie's book is called Great Falls, Montana, Fast Times, Post-Punk Weirdos, and A Tale of Coming Home Again. It's a fascinating story about how Reggie grew up in Montana during the 1980s, half French, half American, half white, and half black. He joins us now to talk about his incredible career and how his childhood lease on life paved the way for his success. He says that moving from Madrid to rural Montana as a kid was a bit of a culture shock. I mean, I think people thought we were weird, you know, that it took them a little while to get used to us. But, uh, you know, over time, like all people in Great Falls or small towns, really anywhere in the world, um, they get used to you because you don't pose a threat and you're not jerks, you know, and then it's fine. Yeah, it wasn't really anything out of the ordinary. I definitely don't remember, like, showing up and going, oh, it was so hard. People were so not welcoming it's like that's not really true they they were i got to do all the stuff that everybody did but you know it just took a while for people to but then like you know i was good at making friends so i sped up that process pretty quickly yeah but you got you got you were the victim of well i shouldn't say victim but i mean you you had to hear racial slurs didn't you from some oh, of yeah. your neighbors yeah oh yeah for sure it was so awesome such <laughs> nice people in hindsight when i think about those times i'm like 
oh, that's what that felt like. You know, like in, in a way, like I got to experience what that is, you know, and to know what it feels like and to to know the energy around it. I was definitely affected by it in the moment, even though like in the early times, I didn't necessarily know what it meant, but I knew obviously energetically, you know, when someone's being pointed or they're being mean, but as it happened later in my life, like growing up there, I just kind of like didn't treat it as anything. Mm-hmm. I just mostly just saw it as like people being, it's their, it's their loss. You know, it's like, you can, you can say whatever you want to say. The intent is supposed to hurt me, but it doesn't really hurt me. There was a guy on Twitter who I got into an argument with and he, and, or not a discussion or whatever. And he's like, I bet you're one of those people that won't allow people to use the term. And then he spelled out the N word mm-hmm. and some other things. And I was like, you can use whatever language you want. It it only affects the people using it. And that's kind of what Montana, at least that's, that was my skill that I developed in Montana. I was just like, I don't know, whatever, whatever the hell you want to do, man, it's your loss. Sure. Yeah. Which it definitely is. That's a good attitude to have. When you got to high school, you were in control. So that marked like a turning point because you had to choose a new identity. What identity did you choose? Yeah. Well, it was before, it was before high school, junior high. I, I saw, I think it was 16 Candles in the theater. And, and that really inspired me. I love that social setup so much. And so I, and I loved all the characters, you know, the, from all the different social classes. And so I just thought to myself, wow, high school, I think high school could be a really great adventure. And I would like to try to experience as many of the social classes as possible. So that first year I was like, well, I don't really have a social class necessarily, aside from kind of like weird, I guess, weird kid, kind of maybe smart kid, <laughs> thought of it as a smart kid. And then uh, I went into football and, you know, it's like first year was like kind of like jock slash, you know, hanging out with some of the jockey kids, but still hanging out with some of my weirdo friends. And then the next year was like student government and a little bit of jock, but then also the whole time I'm in orchestra and in art classes. And uh, but that next year was like in I think I was treasurer or something like that, student union. I don't know. So I was going to popular parties. But then that next year, I think later in the year is when I met my kind of crew, my my more family crew. And then I broke off from all of that stuff. But I basically like went through like nerd, geek, athlete, student government, dude, nothing partier guy going to the preppy kids parties, going to the people less lower income kids parties you know like every everything you could imagine i i went through it as much as i could mm. was there one click that seemed to click with you click to click um, yeah yeah exactly. I, I, guess, I don't know i mean i definitely i like the orchestra kids there was a kind of a conservative element to it that was fun to mess with you know kind of like in a similar way that sam would mess with was it Diane, they played kind of like the conservative foil and Sam was like the chaos factor. It's like that. I, I kind of like that dynamic because I love going into like people's nice homes and, you know, like their families like had nice, clean homes. Like my, my my home was always super clean. And I like going to those kinds of places and pretending I was kind of like bougie, but then also kind of like the bad boy a little bit. You know? <laughs> yeah. I want to talk to you a bit about High school. When when you were in high school, that is correct me if I'm wrong. That's kind of when you caught the comedy bug, right? With this improv comedy, you did it in an assembly with a classmate. Yeah, Wally Bossy. He was my scene partner for this 
humorous duo piece that we created together called two guys doing stuff yeah. we wrote it together <laughs> improvised it together it was so fun to do we had such an amazing time and the teacher really our drama coach just let us do our thing which was amazing mrs Steele, big shout out to mrs Steele. i think she's still teaching at great falls high it was great it was just a, one of the best times of my life for sure there's nothing i love more than like wasting time uh-huh. like you're on stage and you're just you're doing something so mundane or barely anything and people are like what are you doing like like what is happening right now like i love that because it just and you write it just the right amount of time because that was all about just feeling you know the audience and feeling their limit (laughs) and then going like oh i'm sorry i didn't notice you and then it's just like that it just it all works together because you've stretched out time and then now you've punctuated it and it's yeah it was that was pretty great yeah yeah i wish i'd been there for that but darn i missed out anyway you were living in seattle during the height of indie music in the mid 90s and you joined a band called mac tub i'm saying it right right oh uh, it's mock tube oh yeah. oh it's mock tube my apologies mock tube no it's all right it's an arabic okay. word yeah okay right yeah tell us what it means it can mean a bunch of different things but i mean in our context we took it from the alchemist by paulo coelho and um it meant it is written. Right. What kind of music did Mocktop play and, and what was your role in the band? We came out during, I guess, the height of trip hop and electronica. It was very similar to Portishead type beats and like, you know, hip hop beats or trip hop, a lot of trip hop. We were definitely influenced by trip hop, but we also had uh, R&B kind of soul vibe to us. So we had like this mixture of trip hop meets Chardet meets some, I don't know, R&B stuff, electronic R&B soul stuff, um, and a little bit of rock, which I think we got, we were influenced by uh, Massive Attack, Mezzanine, um, that uh, track, uh, what is it? Uh, it's that, say my name, there's Anyways, it goes into this like heavy guitar that you hear this and I think hearing that I was, I was such a rock head. I love Soundgarden so much. I was a huge Soundgarden fan. And so I wanted to sneak in some rock into that project and and everybody was down. So we, we started infusing some of that in later albums. But yeah, it started out as kind of trip hop soul. Things will come to us through experience and we'll learn to live like we should have all along. Never mind the pain, it temporarily takes you out of things. You can always go back in. Oh, yeah. You ended up quitting Mock Tub and you decided to revive your one-man improv comedy. What was behind that decision? It wasn't really that big of a shift because, uh, you know, the comedy, again, was was just like being in high school. You know, it's like doing a humorous solo. It was almost a very almost a one-for-one. One. It was very, very similar. So I'd already been through that experience, and, you know, I'd, I'd entered stand-up competitions also in high school as well. So I had some experience with stand-up and experience with, humoralities yeah it was weird it was oddly like it wasn't strange at all 
it was exciting for sure. Like I was like, oh, this is a new city and oh, I'm in the middle of New York City and I'm doing comedy in New York City. You know, th that was that was certainly exciting. And, you know, but as soon as I walked into Rafifi and started performing and invite them up, it was like instant friendship zone. Like all my friends, it was like running into my long lost family. Mm -hmm. And you got to work with the uh, with the great improv group Stella, featuring Michael Showalter and Michael Ian Black, and they got to work with you and David Wayne. Yeah, yeah, David Wayne. Yeah, can't forget David I, Wayne. I know. Yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah. All, all geniuses. Yeah, I mean, they're the guys who yeah inspired me to get back into comedy. Yeah, because of what Hot American Summer primarily, and then the Stella shorts. Yeah, they really influenced me, and then that them recognizing me, you know, was like that was just crazy because I was. Oh yeah, a huge sense of validation for you. Yeah. Huge. So it was around this time that you discovered the loop machine, which let's, I think we can safely call it a game changer for you. What is the origin story behind the loop machine? Well, I was playing in a uh, avant-garde jazz group called the Wayne Horvitz four plus one ensemble. It's a, oh, sure. Wayne Horvitz is a kind of local Seattle legend, yeah. composer, a uh, piano player. And so he made this group and I was part of it. And we were going on tour, we we're going on a European tour to tour the record. I believe I was using a Roland Sp Space Echo, an RE-101, like the first generation Space Echo, which is an amazing machine. And I stole it from this other composer guy that I, I don't think I ever gave it back to. He must hate me. But um, it, yeah, so I had that for a long time. But then when it came time to tour, I was like, oh, man, this is going to be terrible to tour with because the tape breaks. You have to replace the tape or you have to repair the tape. And, um, you know, I have to bring extra tape and it's heavy and all these things. And then just like maybe four months before we were going on tour, line six came out with the DL4. So a little green delay pedal and it's a delay modeler. So it models every kind of delay you can imagine from mm. the beginning of tape delays all the way to modern digital delays. And so um, Tucker Martin, um, the kind of effects processor guy, part of the group, um, and I both got line sixes and changed everything you know it was like this compact little tiny machine i could hook my whatever i wanted into it and use it and just like i would the re re 101 so i started using it as a delay replacement and then and then i started in breaks when bands when when i'd play like nights where i'd be playing in bands and they would take a break I, sometimes i would stay on during the break and i would do loop based stuff and then that just started happening more and more until mm -hmm the comedy opportunity came up yeah and i'm guessing it went over big from the get-go yeah people really liked it like it was pretty instantaneous so this is a this is my trusty looper pedal that i always have and um and i thought i would maybe make something and if you want to add stuff to the loop because you can add stuff okay you... i have not done this before i okay. do not know how to do this okay okay okay, okay so so now you can add anything you want um, and just when you're ready to go, I'll, I'll hit record. Here, take Shabba shabba corn cob. Shabba shabba corn cob. I love a corn cob. Sorry, I can't go again. corn cob. corn cob. I absolutely loved it. I mean, because people recognize, you know, it's like you recognize when someone's doing something weird. And you're like, oh, I see you. And and that whole whole invite them up scene back in New York in early 2000s was 
just all a bunch of sweethearts, you know, sweetheart, brilliant, weirdo, genius people. And uh, it was great. It was nice to be accepted. Yeah. What did you learn about yourself from writing your memoir? I don't know. It's just I've done so much stuff, you know, it's like so many things I've experienced and um, and I've just wanted to get it down in writing. So I, at least I don't think I'm crazy. Sometimes I'm with people and I hang out with a lot of younger artists and and they'll they'll be talking about some hero of theirs. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I used to hang out with that guy or oh, yeah, yeah, I did that. Oh, I was there at their final concert. Oh, yeah, I did that tour a long time ago. Oh, yeah, I was there when that earthquake hit. Oh, yeah, I was here when that I was here when Kurt Cobain did. I, you know, like like it's like sometimes I listen to myself. and I'm like, that's that's impossible. No one's going to believe that I did all that stuff, you know. And and this book on the cover is really up until about high school and it kind of brushes a little over, you know, Seattle a bit and New York a tiny bit and, and LA, but I'm probably going to release books on just Seattle itself and New York itself because, you know, those were intense, crazy times as well. So, okay. yeah, yeah, I just wanted to give, give people an idea of the stuff that I've done. So I don't right. feel great. Yeah. So we can look forward to more books from you. I hope so. Yeah. I hope people like yeah. this one. Yeah. I hope so too. Reggie Watts, thank you very much for joining us today. Congratulations on Great Falls, Montana. It's a great book full of wonderful writing, your inimitable Watts-esque humor, and a lot of QR codes. Yeah, the way it should be. Reggie Watts is a comedian, a musician, and the author of Great Falls, Montana. Loop your way around to wpr.org slash beta to find out more about Reggie and what he's been up to. When I have sort of this first-person entry point into an essay, I attempt to establish some sort of rapport with my reader, with my audience, through a personal anecdote. Coming up, Miriam Gerba talks about her electrifying essay collection, Creep. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Miriam Gerba is a writer and artist. You may remember her true crime memoir, Mean. It was a New York Times editor's choice and made Oprah's best of list. Now Miriam is back with an incredible essay collection called Creep, Accusations and Confessions. Former beta guest Rachel Kushner says, quote, Gerba is tender but tough, and her book gleams with voluptuous horror, historical rigor, and astonishing psychological depth, unquote. I knew I had to read this book when I noticed that her publisher described it as Miriam Gerba's informal sociology of creeps. I love that description, and maybe that makes me a bit of a creep, but I hope not. So I asked Miriam to join us to talk about her collection and to define creep for us. Creep is a vast bucket. There are all sorts of figures and phenomena that can be placed in that bucket. I am using it as a shorthand for abusers and oppressors. However, I do think that every human being has creep potential. We all have a little creep sitting inside of us just itching to come out and play. And so part of the project of the book Creep is to invite readers to look inward and to identify that inner creep and take inventory of our own sort of participation in what I call creepdom. 
Mm-hmm. And you said that we all have a, a creep coming out to play, but so that, that <laughs> it does mean that it can have kind of a playful side, but it can also have a very negative and dangerous side, can't it? Absolutely. You know, I would argue that creeps exist along a continuum as well as along a spectrum. And for example, Halloween is just around the corner and we're going to be reveling in sort of joyful creepiness. And as a teenager who was very interested in all things gothic, I was attracted to sort of joyful creepiness. However, much of my book deals with uh, serious creepiness. Yes, very much so. Yeah. Let's talk about your opening essay, which is called Tell. Can you tell us a bit about Tell? So the title Tell can be looked at in several ways. We have a narrator and she is telling. So I'm almost positioning the narrator as a tattletale of sorts. She's telling stories she perhaps shouldn't be telling. I'm also invoking a story, a legend, that was developed by beat writer William Burroughs that involves the domestic violence killing of his common-law wife, Joan Vollmer. So it's an invocation of both of those phenomena. Mm-hmm. And one of the, you kind of hinted, hinted at it there, but I want to ask you more specifically, one of the many things that I find fascinating about your writing is the way that so many of your essays start with these personal anecdotes. And then at some point, your essays shift to explore historical events. It's, it's really intriguing. Why, why do you choose to structure your essays this way? I'm very strongly drawn to chronicling in the first person. And so when I have sort of this first-person entry point into an essay, I attempt to establish some sort of rapport with my reader, with my audience, through a personal anecdote. And when I taught high school, which I did for about 15 years, I often began lessons that way. I often began lessons with a story because a personal story is an excellent way to get people hooked into sort of like a didactic process. It's a way to trick them into learning. What I'll do is I'll take this personal anecdote and then I'll situate it within larger histories to demonstrate how I, as well as uh, my family and and other figures who are close to me, are embedded within these larger narratives and histories. Mm. So the historical event, you don't necessarily know what it's going to be when you start writing the, the personal anecdote. Would that be fair to say? Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. For example, in that essay, Tell, where I describe William Burroughs' gender-based violence and also other uh, gender-based violences perpetrated by other figures who are well-known and also lesser known. You know, I had this idea in mind that I wanted to write about these figures, but I also knew that I couldn't immediately sort of present these figures. I needed to slowly build toward them. And so I decided to pull an anecdote from my own life where I'm also engaged in games that are similar to the games that these creeps are playing. (laughs) Mm -hmm, These morbid childhood games. So until you start by describing the morbid childhood games that you played, and then it's only eight pages later, you're writing about William S. Burroughs and the incident involving his wife, Joan Vollmer, that occurred on September 6th, 1951. What happened? We don't really know what happened. We have... Burroughs's word, and we have the word of several witnesses. In the essay Tell, what I attempt to do is recuperate the figure of Volmer. So often, she is relegated to a footnote 
in the history of the Beatniks, and I am trying to restore her to the status of main character. Vollmer could hold her own. She was a brilliant person. She was a witch. She was an artist in her own right who became trapped with an abusive beat figure who claimed that he had been playing a game that was intended to demonstrate his good marksmanship to several men who were witnesses to a violent game. He invited Volmer to place a glass on her head. He took out a gun. He shot at the glass. He missed the glass and shot his wife in the head. And I think very interestingly is the detail that one of the men present at the shooting was a lover of Burroughs. And men often engage in acts of femicide in order to impress other men. That's a detail that I don't often hear emphasized about well, that, that murder. Yeah, I love what you said earlier about recuperating the person of Joan Vollmer, because that that is such a key part. That's what really kind of hit home with me that, yeah, I didn't know all this stuff. And to make matters worse, in my own hand, I kind of realized, hey, how come I didn't seek out this information? You've listened to men tell you what Joan felt in the seconds before Burroughs shot her. What have they told you? I detail uh, an experience that I had with a boyfriend who was older than me when I was in high school. He was of an inappropriate age. And I remember him uh, taking me to his home to watch the film Naked Lunch. And he was so eager to watch this film with me. He insisted that Vollmer had been a very good female partner because she had been invited to perform this dangerous act and she had obeyed. She had trusted her husband enough to engage in this dangerous act with him. And, and I remember being sort of puzzled by the admiration that my then boyfriend was heaping on Burroughs because yes, Vollmer seemingly trusted this man to her fatal detriment. And, you know, in retrospect, I now see that I was also being groomed to trust a certain kind of man to my own detriment as well, because mm. I was I was 15 years old at that time. And the man who was telling me this was in his mid 20s. Yeah. 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 As you mentioned, <laughs> you talk about watching my fellow Canadian David Cronenberg's adaptation of Burroughs' <laughs> supposedly unfilmable novel, Naked Lunch. And you say that you watched your ex-boyfriend stuff a video into the VCR's rectangular <laughs> mouth. And I'm wondering, is this a sly reference to Cronenberg's film Vid Videodrome? It is, yes. So it is, it's a low-key reference to Cronenberg's uh, aesthetics. Those, yeah, the whole, those sort yeah. of tech aesthetics. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, good. I'm, I'm glad I asked that because I thought that's got to be a reference. And, thanks yeah. for catching that. <laughs> oh, sure. Thanks for thanks for including it. Thanks for putting it in there to catch because when I read that phrase, it immediately reminded me of that scene in Videodrome in which the mm -hmm. VHS tape is thrust into a slit in the stomach of James Woods' mm -hmm. character. So thank you for including that. <laughs> you can't really talk about Joan Vollmer without talking about the excellent performance of the Australian actress Judy Davis, who plays Joan Vollmer in the, in the film. And you wrote very poetically about her performance. Can, can you tell us a bit about the, the role that she plays in Naked Lunch? 
Naked Lunch is a sausage fest, right? It's it's a man-centric film. <laughs> and I remember thinking that when I watched it, I was all, wow, it's man after man after man, except we are treated to the impeccable performance uh, of Judy Davis, right? And, you know, like I said, I was I was in my teens when I first saw this film and I was I was a closeted bisexual. I remember watching the film and being absolutely seduced by Judy Davis's portrayal of this beat woman. There was something very icy, very chilly, very grotesque, and very naked about Davis, regardless of her being sort of fully dressed. There was just this perversion about her that excited me. And I imagine she cast that same spell on a lot of queer Gen X girls. She, she sort of became a bit of a muse for us. Mm, yeah. You've said that it's your gallows humor and insult comedy that allows you to write about trauma. How so? For a very long time, I did not want to write about trauma that I had experienced personally. For a very long time, I not only avoided it, but I downplayed certain experiences that I had had. In particular, there was an experience that I survived when I was 19 years old. I was sexually assaulted by a stranger who was a serial attacker. And when I was around 30 or in my early 30s, I, think I finally began to acknowledge that what had happened to me at age 19, my having survived that attack had had a profound imprint on the trajectory that my life had taken. And I decided to sort of buckle down and really look into sort of the abyss, right? And I found the abyss staring back at me. And I really wanted to explore what I had survived through prose. And so I began to read other survivor narratives. And while accessing those was heartening, it was, it was heartening to see survivor narratives on the page, I was bothered by certain storytelling habits that I began to notice. I found people narrating with a humorlessness, with a seriousness, and almost with sort of like a reverential tone. And to me, that seemed grotesque. Like, how can we write about one of the most heinous moments of our lives in a sacral tone? To me, it seems that rape and sexual assault are the most vicious, misogynist, abominable, practical jokes that are played on us by, by patriarchy and misogyny. And so what I began to think was, why not narrate survivorship using grotesque humor as well? given the fact that I think humor is horror's closest stylistic relative. And so I began narrating sexual assault using humor, and I found that that afforded me a certain level of protection. Mm -hmm. Very well said. Yeah, and you're right. Humor and horror combine so well. Um, Thank and you. And you do that very effectively, yeah. You worked as a teacher in Long Beach for a while, and you've said that when you're writing, you always have your former students in mind. If you yeah. don't mind my asking, what kinds of thoughts are going through your mind about your students when you're writing? So as far as students go, what I tend to do is keep them in mind as an audience so that I can sort of shape whatever message I have and tailor it to them. 
And what that forces me to do is it forces me to consider a really broad audience. It forces me to consider an audience that's as young as a teenager. And then when I also consider sort of my elders, I also have to consider audience members who might be in their 70s or 80s and 90s. So it forces me to really craft a message that doesn't alienate people. Mm, so being a school teacher was a big help in, in be, being a writer. Would that be fair to yes. say? Yes. Yeah. In many ways, I owe my voice to my students. You come from a family of storytellers. What does your family think of Creep? I invited them to participate in the writing of Creep. So in a sense, the book was co-written by several family members. There's an essay titled Locas, which is the only essay in the collection that was commissioned by a family member. So my cousin Desiree came to me and essentially gave me instructions. And, and I'm paraphrasing what she said, but in a nutshell, what she, what she said is that she exists as a criminalized Latina in the uh, criminal legal archives of the United States of America. She spent 15 years total in various California jails and prisons. And uh, crime reporters have also written about her. And she has long been bothered by this particular legacy. And what bothers her most is that she exists as this criminalized individual, but there's no story explaining how it is that she was transformed into a female gangster. And so she entrusted me with the telling of her creation, her birth as a female gangster. Female gangsters are made. They don't come out of the womb <laughs> throwing gang signs. And so my cousin and I, when we were 12, no, about 13 years old, we actually created our own gang. It was a two-girl gang called Pocas Pero Locas, which means the few but insane. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so we formed this two-girl gang, and, and my cousin and I took, took very different routes in life after that. My cousin became an actual mafiosa, and I became a teacher and a writer. And because I've been a witness to my cousin's entire life trajectory, she picked me as the person to tell her story. And because I've never been jumped out of our childhood gang, I couldn't say no. So, <laughs> so that's an example of how some of these essays were co-written. Yeah, thank you for sharing that example. Miriam Gerba, thank you very much for joining us today. Congratulations on Creep, Accusations and Confessions. It's an incredibly haunting and powerful book. <laughs> thank you so much. Miriam Gerba is the author of Creep, Accusations and Confessions. Find out more about Miriam and what kind of creep you are at wpr.org beta. Well, that does it for this edition of Beta. Thanks to our guests, Greg Proops, Reggie Watts, and Miriam Gerba. What you're gleaning from these interviews is groundbreaking. Beta is available to follow on Spotify or wherever you catch your favorite pods. Don't forget to offer a rating to share with new alphas. And you can keep up with us during the week online at wpr.org slash beta. Even for the internet, it's pretty shocking. Beta is a production of Wisconsin Public Radio and Red Meat Productions. Fantastic. Our music and technical director is Steve Gotcher. Oh, hey, Steve. Our executive producer, nay, showrunner, is Adam Friedrich. And thanks to you, our alphas. More beta comes your way next week. Until then, I'm Doug Gordon. Hey!
Aren't you Doug Funny from that show Doug? 